Pentecostal Christianity is in a three-way race with Islam and Hinduism to become the world's fastest growing religion. An estimated 600 million people are Pentecostals and by 2050 it will be about 1 billion people, 1 billion followers. In the English-speaking world, one of the marquee names is the home-grown Hillsong Church here in Australia. In the past year, it's hit turbulence with the departure of its charismatic, at times controversial founder, Brian Houston. But it's only one part of a much bigger story about a religious movement that began in poverty but has become very powerful around the world. It's also a movement that defies stereotypes of religious people. Its followers are mostly women, young, not white, and not always conservative. Australian writer El Hardy is not a Pentecostal, but she spent four years immersing herself in this movement for her new book, Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. They're charismatic churches in the theological sense, but also the leaders are exceptionally charismatic people. To build up a little church and into this huge global brand probably takes a certain amount of of skill and ego, and there just does tend to be a pattern um, with these sorts of leaders. To get to the top, you have to have an incredible personal charisma. It's I sort of explain to people it's like the Bill Clinton effect, you know, when people said that when you were talking to him, you felt like you were the only person in the room. Some of these church leaders that oversee these huge mega churches are exceptional people persons and do have this ability with people, but sometimes it appears there's just a, a pattern that sometimes people can overstep the line and can sometimes probably use their power and influence for things that aren't good. Mm. You've been using the term the Hillsong brand. To what extent is Hillsong much more than just a congregation? It's a very big congregation, but is being a congregation in a way the lesser part of Hillsong? It really is a brand, and, and I do use that quite deliberately. I mean, Hillsong has has really changed the way of doing church, as they would say, around the world. It's a musical brand. Most people would know it first and foremost. You'll have traditional Catholic churches in some parts of the world having to play Hillsong music so they're not losing their congregants. It really has changed the way that people do church. You know, they don't call themselves a Pentecostal church anymore. They left the umbrella groups like the Assemblies of God and Australian Christian churches. They're not even non-denominational. They are just Hillsong. They are all about the brand. And I really think we're seeing in recent days that they are really behaving like a corporation now, because in many senses, that's what they are. They're a morally charged business operation. Yeah, this is a phrase that you use quite a bit in your fascinating book, a morally charged business. What is Hillsong worth, by the way? I wish that I knew. Their finances are, are pretty opaque. I mean, they do put everything on the website, but there's so many different branches around the world and... I just can't be sure of all of their revenue, but but I think just the church in Australia is probably seeing about 100 million revenue a year, which is obviously a huge amount of money. And their music, which has always been the key to it, it's what they're so famous for. They've transformed global faith with their music, but that was really the arm that 
gave them all this money so that they could expand quite aggressively and and make sure that their brand always was synonymous with this new third wave Pentecostalism, this new way of doing church. As I understand it, Elle, from your book, most of Hillsong's revenue doesn't come from tithing or people contributing money at weekly services. Where does it come from then? Yeah, look, we don't know the exact figures, but we do know that another very similar church with a big musical arm called Bethel Reading in the United States and California, they get 81% of their revenue from music and merchandise sales and probably their college as well, I believe. And Hillsong has a very similar business model. The tithing and things like that isn't so important, but the damage I think that's being done at the moment to the Hillsong branding when there are a lot of imitators out there because Hillsong's music is very good. It's very credible production values. Young people, you know, flock to the church because it sounds like music that they might hear on commercial radio. You know, it allows them to be a Christian and still navigate the modern world, still feel that they're a part of that. And that has been very important to Hillsong's global branding. So the fact that the brand really is on the nose right now, I think, could spell trouble. There's, as I mentioned, many other imitators, and I suspect a lot of other churches might just start playing their music and just casting the Hillsong name aside. Elle, if we look at the footprint of Hillsong, one of the things that might surprise people, and this is very topical today, what has Hillsong done to expand in Ukraine and Russia? Pentecostals have always been very interested in the former Soviet Union and Hillsong very successfully. And and as far as I'm aware, they were one of sort of the earlier churches that did expand. So they had have two churches in Kiev and one in Moscow. I'm not sure of the actual status of them now. But yeah, the fact that they've been able to move into places that have quite a strong faith and have been a real expression for people that go to those churches of wanting to be part of something bigger, you know, feel like they were a global Christian, you know, maybe they've learned English and they really wanted to be able to practice it at the weekend. It's very common in a lot of, uh, for example, Korean churches that they might practice their faith in English and feel like a a global citizen. So they've certainly been growing in importance and and influence over in in Kiev and, and Moscow. I don't know if they'd be able to stick around in Moscow now, to be honest. I suspect they might be getting cracked down on, but certainly I think that they'll maintain a presence a presence in in Kiev if hopefully very soon the the war can come to an end. Why did the Pentecostal movement, not just Hillsong, but the broader movement, see places like Ukraine and Russia as, uh, in their language, mission fields? Pentecostals have always had a real sense of missionary duty. Now a lot of them are really fascinated with China. But, but yeah, they always thought they were the godless Soviet Union. But, you know, that it was also fertile ground, I suppose. You know, these are people, countries that were fairly traditionally Christian and and practiced quite a deep faith. I think that there was always that assumption and they felt it had been taken away from them by communists. So there was always a, a real eagerness. And, and, you know, there were house churches in the 70s and 80s in the Soviet Union and in China. They still are to this day and they were often planted by Pentecostals. You know, they're true believers. They will risk their lives to, to go and do some of this stuff. So they've always had a keen interest. And certainly once countries like Ukraine and Russia opened with the fall of the Iron Curtain, they were very quick to get in on the ground and continue to plant churches and also, you know, continue with, with a bit of welfare, you know, with, with helping people with a bit of education, helping people teach, learn some English, and, you know, in case they want to get out and, and try and work overseas. And just once again, Pentecostals just speak to the here and now. They just know what people want and they know what will help them. And we should just 
clarify, because I know there's a lot of um, emphasis on their speaking in tongues, but yes. we should just clarify Pentecostalism's theology, in a way it's both fundamentalist, literalist in the Bible, but yet they can be pretty elastic in the way that they apply it. I mean, some Pentecostals aren't that judgmental about things like abortion, I understand. The general political movement, I suppose, within Pentecostalism is really about transforming society. So it's not just so much saving saving your soul or stopping her abortion. It is really about much bigger transformational projects within the churches and the communities and countries at large. Probably the big social issue that Pentecostals around the world would bring up with me all the time is gay marriage. That is really seen as a problem of secular liberalism, a problem of the West, and Pentecostals in in a lot of countries around the world really do have an issue with that. And and there's quite a movement on in places like Brazil and Nigeria to come and re-evangelise the West, you know, say they brought us the good news and now all this, this liberal culture is sort of seeing them lose their way and we want to help them find God again. This is the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you. We're speaking with El Hardy, and El is the author of the new book Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. It's received some excellent reviews. El, let's just broaden this now. Hillsong may be a mega church, but reading your book, I realised that in a way it's actually dwarfed. Hillsong may have 180,000 followers in various campuses around the world. But tell me about, I think it's called the Yodo Church in South Korea. Yodo, they have about 800,000 followers worldwide. They claim to be the largest church in the world. I would actually dispute that just having been to some of the Nigerian churches. I think you could probably get Hillsong's entire global following into the redeemed Christian church, which is just outside of Lagos. But yeah, Yoido has about 800,000 followers worldwide. You know, a lot of people tune in online as well now. It has a very beautiful choir. If ever you're in Seoul, I recommend just going to hear the music. But it feels like an NBA amphitheatre. It's about 20,000 people at a time will come in and they'll have services every two hours across Sunday. So they'll have six or seven different services. It's very difficult to understand the scale of Pentecostalism until you're going into these real mega or giga churches, as they're sometimes called. I think there's 18 or 20 churches that are mega churches in Seoul alone, which is over 2,000 people going every week. And yeah, Pentecostals are just really sweeping up around the globe. We think that there's at least 600 million followers worldwide, about 35,000 people converting a day. Mm. Tell me what you discovered about the churches that line this highway in Nigeria. It really only took off in the 80s, this phenomenon, and it was something that we saw in Brazil as well, which is probably outside of Nigeria, the other really big Pentecostal nation, and that it was started by the working poor, people who understood things that the churches never have, that what working people need is, you know, a church that opens at five in the morning and at midnight. Because when you're travelling on the in the horrendous traffic all day, that's often hours each way to and from work. People need their spiritual needs catered to. They might want to go and pray for prosperity gospel before they go to work. If they're, you know, young people and they're having to spend three hours each way per day in traffic, they can't find a partner. So the churches put on speed dating and things like that. So they're really doing what Pentecostals do best, which is catering to people in the here and now as, as well as the ever after 
as someone in Brazil said to me in a favela there where Pentecostalism's, you know, really taken off, probably at least 30% of Brazil now is Pentecostal and, and that's only really been since the 1980s. They've undone sort of 500 years of Catholicism in 40. Mm. But yeah, someone said to me in a Brazilian favela, you know, Pentecostals say that you can have a good life in this one too. Catholics only say you can have a good life in the next one. And that's really what I think is a huge part behind the explosion of Pentecostalism worldwide. Yeah, you mentioned there prosperity gospel, because it can mean different things. I mean, what does it mean, for example, as you came to understand it in your deep exploration of Pentecostalism? It isn't necessarily the greed-motivated thing that people think, I suppose. It's really the idea that that it's acceptable and even desirable to give to your church in order to get rich. But Pentecostals also see it as a sign of the strength of their faith, that they are being a good Christian and having these rewards come to them. And I think we often think of the prosperity preacher as a pretty grotesque guy who's got private jets and who's, you know, accepting the title deeds to their poor congregant's house. But And, and there are some of those. I mean, there are, these, there are these Pentecostal <laughs> leaders in Africa and it's pretty appalling in Africa and in Brazil because they're t- we're talking about quite impoverished communities that do have, I think there's one guy that's got three private jets. Absolutely. But what we're seeing within these communities is, well, first of all, a lot of people are being born again into the faith. So they're seeing that real demarcation in their life of before and after. And so they tend to see a real improvement in their life once they start attending a Pentecostal church. So often for a lot of these people, they feel like they're buying in when they're tithing or or trying to give something to get a little bit more in return. They're buying into an accountability structure. They're buying into a community, you know, people who are telling you and your pastor's sort of mentoring you to quit that awful job in the factory and start this little stall that you've always wanted to. And then everyone in the church will start shopping there. People really feel like they're buying into this network and that, you know, they might get a little bit of health care, a bit of child care. You know, often it's a place where your kids can do music and soccer, practice after school while you're working two jobs. And people really aren't getting this anywhere else. These are sort of almost para-states that we're seeing start to form. It struck me reading the book that in all of the places you visited and having a bit of history behind this knowledge, Pentecostalism, despite its association And it's obviously a very concrete association with some very right-wing political movements. It is, in fact, a movement of the outsider, isn't it? Very much so. It's the faith of the working poor. It's the faith of minorities, of migrants. I think one thing that we're really seeing over and over again is that it's it's a faith of people in in megacities, in Lagos, Sao Paulo, Seoul, perhaps moving from the country or from a small village and they're getting to these huge cities and feeling alienated. And this church becomes some semblance of a community that you can buy into. In London, you go to a Pentecostal church and it's mostly a lot of West Africans. I think it's often their way of for example, being a Nigerian and also existing in London, it helps you connect to your culture, to grandma back home in Lagos, and also helps you just be able to exist in, in this huge modern city. We're seeing uh, North Korean defectors, once they get to Seoul, they just can't cope. You know, it's a huge, crazy, fast-paced city. And, and the church becomes, once again, the only place where they've got a bit of a community where people will help you out. And your faith becomes a way of trying to navigate your alienation in these big, crazy, modern cities that we live in. And the other group, of course, that in many ways in Europe represents 
the outsider group are the gypsies or the Roma people. How have the Roma people, many of whom were traditionally of Eastern Orthodox Christian faith or some of Catholic faith, how have they taken to Pentecostalism? The conversion of British gypsies, they call themselves gypsies now, I think mainland tend to be Romani or, or Roma, is, is huge. Some of the gypsies that I spoke to, they think that they might be the fastest Pentecostalizing group on earth. It's been as outsiders, they have come to this faith. It began in early 50s in France. You know, much of the country is still smouldering ruin from World War II. And, you know, and a poor woman's son was about to die and the hospital said, you've got other kids, just have them. And the Pentecostals were the only ones that would come and pray for her and they prayed and laid hands on her son and he got better and from there it's just exploded particularly since the 80s but it was quite heartbreaking I mean I, I had a really good time hanging out and with these street evangelizing gypsies in the UK and they're really good guys a lot of them are ex-crooks who've turned their lives around and really fervent and good Christians but it sort of occurred to me after spending all this time with him that they finally felt acceptable in modern Britain as gypsies and they feel it's the only sort of way that they can be themselves as both gypsies is also by Christianity. And when gypsies are converting now, they, they tend to give up the travelling lifestyle, they tend to, to settle down and so they're obviously losing a big important part of themselves and their heritage in order to be accepted in, into modern Britain and I found that quite heartbreaking. Elia referred there to how it was the Pentecostals who in 1950s France were the only ones who seemed to show some care, even if it were just through prayer for poor people. That notion of prayer for the sick, though, can get some Pentecostals into trouble. It can annoy a lot of other people. What did you find about uh, the Pentecostals in Reading, California, with their prayer ministries for cancer victims? That was Bethel, the church that I mentioned earlier. They have a very large Bible college, I suppose, there called um, Bethel School of Supernatural Ministries. And one of their really big things is faith healing. And the students are well known for going out into the town and healing people, whether they like it or not. And I, I spoke to a local woman in the town, Rhonda, uh, who started a sort of Bethel Watch online group after um, some students stopped her mother who was in a wheelchair and asked if they could lay hands and heal her. And she said no. And they put their feet under her wheels so she couldn't roll away and laid hands on her. And obviously, you know, that's hugely traumatic. And she felt deeply powerless. It was about a decade ago. Her family's still, you know, furious about it to this day. So there is known to be a problem in this town with these kids are sort of imbued with all of these ideas. You know, they're enthusiastic 19-year-olds and they're, they're told that they can heal the world and make everything better. And then they go out and they won't take no for an answer. And it's obviously um, not very nice to have people touching you and promising you the world without your consent. Mm. It's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you. This week we're speaking with El Hardy about El's new book, Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. Another theme that comes through in your book very, very powerfully is, in a sense, the whole countercultural nature of Pentecostalism. Now, I would argue today, of course, that with its huge emphasis on popular music, it's not really so uh, countercultural. Not today, but the roots of it are very definitely countercultural. Tell me about the fascinating figure of Amy Semple McPherson. She really is a, just a story in herself. She's a proto televangelist, I suppose, in 1920s America. 
Pentecostalism really only took off in, in 1906. It's considered from the Azusa Street Revival. So within 15 years, she was a very prominent figure within the movement and may have been the first woman in the world to have her own radio show. She kind of took it from its earliest days when it was a very raucous faith. You know, people were rolling around, babbling in tongues and everything. She kind of cleaned it up a bit and packaged it and took it out to the masses. And again, as we sort of talked about with Brian Houston earlier, she just had this incredible sense for a crowd and for how to deal with people. They said that, you know, she could just detect a waning audience like it was a sound, you know, and bring people back in. And she was also a very flawed figure, had a had sort of a few disastrous marriages and was eventually kidnapped, also she claimed, by some Mexican people and was found out in the desert a few weeks later. But there were also rumours at the time that she was seen driving up the Californian coast with a lover. She was very interested in the politics of the day, was, was a very early supporter of the State of Israel, went to Europe and saw speeches by Mussolini and Hitler, was a great opponent of both fascism and communism. Yeah, most... and a great supporter of Franklin Roosevelt for a while and the, the New Deal. Yes, in spite, she was also uh, very prominent in the Scopes monkey trial in, um, in supporting the non-evolution side. So, yeah, she was always very good at throwing herself into politics and just sort of sensing where the changing winds were, were happening. Again, it's a very common thing to Pentecostal, a good Pentecostal leader. They always seem to be just, a, you know, a step ahead of the zeitgeist. Um, and then she quite uh, tragically died of a barbiturate overdose in 1946. And what about this other countercultural figure, Lonnie Frisbee? I think he came out of the 60s. Yeah, he's, he's another classically transformational Pentecostal figure, but also a very tragic one. So he, you know, is really probably the, the father of what we call the second wave of Pentecostalism, of the charismatics, of the, the Jesus people or the Jesus freak movements. This is a guy who'd been up in Haight-Ashbury in the summer of love and, like a lot of other people, saw for what it was. There was, you know, horrendous sexual assaults happening. Um, there was a lot of hedonism, but probably not a lot of happiness. And, yeah, came back down the coast and, and had some conversations with God. He was quite a heavy LSD user. And he went back to church and, and really changed it and brought the hippie music and, you know, the big beards and the flares and all that kind of stuff into churches and said, you know, you can be a Californian surfer, hippie, 60s person and also be a Christian and, you know, really helped to transform the entire faith. And then was sadly cast out by all the people that really took on all his ideas when it was discovered that he was, if not homosexual, at least bisexual, and, and he very sadly uh, died of AIDS. What is the biggest mistaken assumption that people make about Pentecostalism? I guess I'd say I think I've been hearing it a lot lately. People think it's a cult. It's not at all. You know, it's a very serious faith with very serious, pious people that, that deserves to be taken seriously. And and like anything, when you have 600 million people in one tent, there's going to be some absolute crooks and charlatans and there's going to be some absolute living saints. I, I like to hope that, that my book kind of covers the full gamut of that. There is often an underestimation, perhaps, of Pentecostal faith. You can go to a Hillsong or a Bethel and it just feels rock concert vibes you know it, it's just really all about music and dancing around and feeling good but these are yeah like I said serious people the um, belief is is very real and we go into some of the more political angles within the book there's a pretty strong political movement cohering out of the faith um, which I think we're only really just beginning to understand. Yeah and this is fascinating Elle because having been a movement of the outsider of the downtrodden 
how is Pentecostalism now transforming itself? Because if we look at Brazil and, well, at the United States and the way that Donald Trump harnessed Pentecostalism, it's really transforming itself into something that is an expression of the powerful, isn't it? As I said earlier, you know, Pentecostals just always have this incredible sense for just, just being a slight step ahead of the zeitgeist. And they got behind leaders like Trump before the other evangelicals. Likewise with Bolsonaro and, and all sorts of other populists around the world, uh, Duterte in Philippines, even Viktor Orban in Hungary. They've just been very quick to understand, I think, and perhaps see a bedfellow in a lot of this sense, I think, of the populism we're seeing that has a real disdain for experts and, you know, that believes in in what you feel is more important than someone else's facts and things like that. So Pentecostals have genuinely been fairly quick to get behind a lot of these populist leaders, for better and for worse, obviously, because we're seeing a lot of people, for example, who, who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, who were directly inspired by some of the very extreme Pentecostal pastors that we've seen popping up, especially during the pandemic, that were preaching some really hateful stuff on Facebook. And I think at a time when a lot of people were disconnected from their, their churches and their friends and their family during lockdown, I think it was very easy to really inspire people to get to some quite extreme views within their faith when they were losing those connections and didn't have people to bounce ideas off. And we're seeing over and over again, a new study just came out last week that the majority of people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th were Christians who were religiously inspired. And certainly a lot of those came from from Pentecostal and, and charismatic churches. I'm struck by something that I read at the very beginning of your book where you made this observation about the mainstream Protestant churches in the United States and probably in Europe in the early part of the 20th century, that yes, they were becoming more liberal, but in a way they were also becoming more elitist and sneering. And I see the reflection of this today, not not so much in churches, but in liberal institutions. How much do you think public attitudes, aggressively secular attitudes towards religion are perversely fueling the extreme end of these religious movements. Yeah, there is a real sense within Pentecostals who mightn't even necessarily be right-wing or conservative themselves, but they do feel quite besieged by secular culture, secular liberal culture. They feel as though they're, you know, treated as idiots and holding sort of outdated beliefs and that, you know, a lot of people think that progress and secularization are kind of linear things that are just going to keep happening. And especially in, in most parts of the global south, that just isn't the case. You know, a lot of those places are becoming more religious. So, yeah, there certainly is a sense that they they are culturally at odds with a lot of things happening around them. And that obviously for people of faith will, will sort of drive them further into the churches and kind of, I suppose, some of those cultural divisions that we are probably seeing grow at the moment with polarisation and various things, that that there just is a real lack of understanding about what faith is in the modern world, I think, um, why people go to church and, and how they navigate living as a Christian in a fairly secular world in the West, at least. I really do think there is a lack of understanding. And unfortunately, a lot of that does come from from our great profession. You know, most newsrooms are, are very secular liberal places. And, and I'm a fairly secular liberal person myself. So I had to deal with trying to get rid of a lot of my own assumptions when I was writing this book. But certainly the lack of understanding of faith 
in modern, you know, yeah, Western liberal culture, I think is is quite a problem. And I think it's something that's probably getting worse. Well, you've done a phenomenal job because you've really immersed yourself in Pentecostal culture on about four continents, L, and the result is the book Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. El Hardy, thank you for coming back to the Religion and Ethics Report. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.